Let's turn to our New Testament reading in Hebrews chapter 10, once again. Page 1006 in the Blue Bible, Hebrews 10. We'll begin at verse 11. Hear God's holy word. Verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And that's the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. We're coming to the, the climax of this, uh, this section where the writer of Hebrews is contrasting um, the old covenant priests with our new covenant priest, Jesus Christ, and his work, his priestly work. And of course, the point that he's making is that there is no comparison, really, at all, because Jesus Christ is so much better. He is everything that all those Old Testament priests could never possibly be. Everything that uh, they pointed forward to, that's really all that they were able to do. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament was... Uh, just that. It was a sign pointing forward to the Savior who was to come and to truly accomplish redemption through his sacrifice. He is vastly superior to all the Old Testament priests, to Aaron, his successors, and to Melchizedek even. Uh, the new covenant is vastly superior to the old covenant in Moses. In fact, the Mosaic covenant was given uh, mainly to point to the new covenant, to point man to his need for the new covenant. It was given to show man that he couldn't possibly measure up to all these laws of God, these laws that reveal God's perfection. Mosaic covenant was given for that purpose primarily, to drive man to Christ, to show him what a wicked, wretched sinner he is and how much he desperately needs that Savior who was promised so that he could find forgiveness, real forgiveness, through the blood of Christ. And there again, Christ's blood is better than the blood of all those Old Testament sacrifices. They could never take away sins, the writer stresses. They were, again, only signs that were pointing forward, pointing the sinner's eyes of faith forward to Jesus and his death, his sacrificial death, that would fully and finally atone for our sins. Commentator Lenski writes of this passage, This is the climax the whole will of God, the whole sacrifice of death center in the removal of our sins and freed of these. Heaven is ours without Christ's expiation. There is no remission of sin, no deliverance from sin. This is the heart of all Scripture. He's right. This teaching is the heart of all Scripture. Everything points to Jesus Christ and his once for all sacrifice for us and for our sins. But again, the temptation was very real for those early Christians 
to uh, want to get out of the persecution that they were enduring as Christians. They were being very much tempted to go back to uh, unbelieving Judaism with its emphasis on the Old Covenant, with its emphasis on obedience and the sacrifices. But the writer's saying that to do so would be the worst kind of folly. It would be to give up peace with God. It would be to give up on the reality of God's forgiveness and access, the real access to God's presence that we have now through Jesus Christ. And the old system could never really provide those blessings. It, it was uh, only shadows and pictures of those realities that were to come. And yes, the Old Testament believer could be saved by faith, by looking forward to that promised Savior. But now the promise had come to fulfillment. The Savior himself had come. And so to go backwards, to go back to Judaism, uh, which was still um, awaiting the promised one, denying that Christ had come, that would be the worst treason. That would be monstrous unbelief. It would be to deny that God had already kept his promise. It would be to deny Christ, his finished work. It would be to deny oneself salvation. But Jesus had already done exactly what the Father had promised and sent him to do. He had put away sin, and he had made his people holy in him once and for all. And nothing on earth is worth giving up those heavenly, eternal blessings of salvation that Christ had accomplished. Look at verses 11 through 14 again. The writer writes here again of the perfect, accomplished salvation that Christ has wrought. He says, and every priest, he's contrasting again the the uh, old covenant priests and their ministry with that of Christ. Every peace, priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected. You have to love this line. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus on the cross had done, past tense, had already done what no priest of Israel ever could. That's the point of the writer saying here, that after the offering of himself, Christ offering his life, he sat down. He sat down because his work was finished. His work was accomplished. The Old Testament priests didn't get to sit down. They didn't have any way to sit down in the tabernacle. There was no uh, seating. There were no chairs in the tabernacle for them to sit on. They had no business sitting. They had to do their work. They stayed on their feet, moving, working, doing their tasks. And then they got out of there. They got out of there, frankly, for fear of death. But then they had to keep going back over and over again, repeating this process because their work was never done. But Jesus was that final priest and final sacrifice. He finished his work on the cross and in the grave. Then he was raised again, and he ascended victory and was enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110 is one of the great Old Testament passages that speaks of this. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The writer is alluding to that passage here. He sat down because his work of sacrifice was finished. William Barclay writes, the priests stand offering sacrifices, but Christ sits at the right hand of God. Theirs is a position of a servant, but his is a position of a monarch. Jesus is the king who has come home. His task 
accomplished and his victory won. He came into this world and finished this work that the Father gave him to do. Perfectly finished it. Completely finished. And now he's gone back to heaven where he sits. He rests from that labor, if you will. That labor is done. It is a done deal. Alan's dad, AC, used to always love to say that phrase. It's a done deal. Speaking of our salvation, that's right. It's a done deal, and that's what the writer's saying here. Christ's work is a done deal, and only he can provide that kind of salvation for us wretched sinners. We need it to be accomplished by another. We need it to be finished by another. And the writer's saying here, he's, he's really saying all through this book, what is wrong with you people thinking of departing from this Savior? Don't you know what you're contemplating, giving up? Don't you know that you're in danger of deserting the one and only Savior of the world? There is no other. No other Savior is coming. He's the one. Jesus Christ is salvation embodied. He's the one who makes us perfect in God's sight and has done so by his sacrifice. That's what the writer's saying here. Our perfection is accomplished by Christ's sacrificial death. And because of that, all other uh, sacrificial service is an abomination to God. Jesus is the one sacrifice who takes away all our sins and grants forgiveness and reconciliation to this holy God and eternal life. And he brings us into God's presence and his loving arms forever. Only he does that. Only his atoning sacrifice. Now, all we need to do to become partakers of that is to hear and believe that good news. We just have to trust in this Jesus. Trust in him, and you are given all those benefits of eternal life, forgiveness, eternal joy in God's presence. If you won't trust in him, you are lost, and you are still in your sins and still God's enemy. Look at verse 14 again. This is, a, this is one for memorizing. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What he's saying is this perfect Savior has made us perfect in God's sight. He is the perfect, obedient Savior and the perfect sacrifice for sin. And he remains our perfect priest at the right hand of God now. He's the only one who was perfectly qualified to make us perfect in all the ways that God requires us to be perfect. Chapter 10, verse 1 said that the old covenant could never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. But now Jesus has done that. He has made perfect those who draw near to God through him. Commentator David Peterson writes and explains this. Fundamentally, this making us perfect refers to the forgiveness of our sins and the cleansing of our consciences and making possible the consecration to God's service of those who are being sanctified. The writer's telling us Jesus has already made us perfect in those ways, in those ways that we need to be made perfect right now. He's talking about our justification before God. Our justification is perfect. It is complete. We are completely forgiven of all our sins the moment we trust in the Savior. We are clothed completely in his perfect righteousness. We are completely reconciled to God. That work is perfectly accomplished. We've been set apart from the world unto God, and we've been brought into God's service. We're his people now, whereas we weren't before. Listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says in question 60. It's such a great, great catechism, so warm and, and uh, living. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith 
in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments and have never kept any of them and am still inclined to all evil, I love how real that is, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me, credits to me, the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin. As if I never had or committed any sin. And as if I myself had accomplished obedience. All the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. That's how you are righteous before God. People, that is the effectiveness of Jesus Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. That's what he's accomplished for you. That's the perfection you have even now in this life, even though you and I are still so full of sin. He's completed a perfect salvation for you and I. We have been perfected already in God's sight in these ways. And this should completely humble us. This should totally humble us because we have absolutely nothing at all to boast of here. This perfection doesn't come from you or I, not one bit of it. He did it all for us. And it's credited to us, despite what we are. He even had to apply it to us and grant saving faith to us. We can't even claim that ourselves. Isn't that amazing? God had to take the sovereign initiative in accomplishing this salvation and even applying it to us. Even faith is not of ourselves. It's a gift of his spirit. We've been made perfect in God's sight without doing even one good work of our own. It's completely apart from us and what we've done. It was all his doing, all the work of this great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're perfected in him. Of course, we also see the progressive aspect of our salvation here, the, the process that we're continuing to go through in this life. We're perfectly holy in Christ, even now, set apart unto God, perfectly righteous in his sight. But of course, we are not perfectly holy in our character yet, in our actual conduct. We've got a long way to go in that respect. In that respect, as verse 14 says, we are those who are being made holy. We're in process. We're being conformed to the image of God's Son. And that wonderful work is ongoing. It's happening presently in every believer's life. And everyone who is justified, that person is also being sanctified. And that work will be brought to completion. It will be brought to final and full perfection in the future perfect conformity to God will be the reality for us. And that's something we look forward to, don't we? No more sin, just being like him. No more uh, offense to God. Just perfect likeness to Christ. Perfect pleasing. That day's coming for us. But the real sense of this passage is not on that matter. It's not on God's changing our character and one day perfecting us. It's on the completed past action of Jesus that has already perfected us in in those other senses. Again, he says, by a single offering, he has perfected us. That wonderful event has occurred. That, That massive thing has already taken place at a point in time in history, in the past. It's done, completed, never to be repeated. Nothing was lacking in it. It was once and for all Jesus' sacrifice. And the writer's emphatic about that. And the results of this sacrifice of Christ are also final. His perfecting us refers 
to a, a once-for-all reality, but also one that endures. It's a continuous state of perfection that we have before God. It's not something that we can lose. The moment you trust in Christ, this is yours, and it's yours for good by His grace. Our salvation is a completed product, and it's a durable product. It is a done deal, truly, forever. We need to rejoice in that. That's why the gospel is good news. Such good news. It's a message that declares to us that that God has changed everything for us who believe in Jesus. And it all hinges on this fact that He died for us. If He hasn't died for us, then we're still in our sins. We're still damned. But because He has died, we who believe are safe and secure in Christ and in God's love forever. Nothing can separate us from the love of, love of God in Christ Jesus. So yes, the full process of our salvation is not yet completed. That's continuing. But the outcome is certain because Christ's work is finished. You and I, believer, you've already been justified. You are presently being sanctified. And you will be glorified. Very soon. But in the eyes of God, the whole thing is finished. The entire process is already completed. It's completed because Jesus finished the job. You're already counted perfect in Him. So take those words of verse 14 to heart. Believe them. Make it personal. Make it about you. Because it is about you. Say it to yourself. He has perfected me for all times. It's for you to enjoy, for you to believe, and for you to rest in. Rest in that true joy. And knowing this past finished work of Jesus is a reality. That's what enables us to live now the way we need to live. That's what enables us to live for God today in this life. We've been declared perfectly holy in Christ, and now God is bringing that holiness more and more into our present reality, into our present lives. He's changing us. He's conforming us to his son. He's empowering us by his spirit. So on the one hand, we've got an identity here that, that is a reality already that's established. Holiness, righteousness, that's our identity in Christ already, but it's becoming more and more a present reality in our lives daily through the spirit's working in us. The writer talks about this when he cites Jeremiah 31 in verses 15 and 16 here in chapter 10. He says, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Here again, he's contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. It's so much better. This administration is so much better. We are different now as people who are believers in Christ. We're made new and not by any power from within us. This is not us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, uh, trying to improve our lives, trying to do better. He's telling us a power from heaven has been placed within us. A person from heaven has been placed within us, sent by the Father and by the Son. It is God's Holy Spirit. He has come to take up residence in us. He lives within us. He's working in us, working for us. That's why you as a believer begin to believe in Christ. That's why you begin to think new thoughts. That's why you begin to want to live in new ways, in the ways of the Lord. This is not just about us trying to, to, to shape up and clean up our act and improve our lives. This is a, this is a supernatural reality of, of God's Word being internalized in us, not written on tablets of stone merely outwardly any longer, but God's Word being written within us changing our minds, in other words, 
changing our hearts, giving us the mind of Christ. And this is not an all-at-once occurrence. It is all at once when the Spirit is given to us. But this lifelong process is what it takes for this change to be carried out. It's not all at once. It is a lifelong deliverance from the power of sin that still dwells in us. Ephesians 4 speaks about this in verses 23 and 24. It speaks about our being renewed in the spirit of our minds and putting on the new self that's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's happening in our lives more and more daily. Are you seeing that in your life? That's what the Spirit is doing in God's people. He's enabling us to participate. We're not passive in this sense. We're we're, uh, called to engage and cooperate with God's Spirit in this, growing in love for God, growing in obedience to Him, growing in the fruit of God's Spirit in our lives. But it's the life of God within us, implanted in our souls, that is carrying out this work. It's the Spirit transforming us from the inside out. It's inward. Call it subjective, if you will. It's that subjective working of God within us as individuals, but it's being worked out outwardly. We are to work out the salvation that God has worked in us, that he's continuing to work in us. But again, the writer, I think he's really stressing here, more than anything, he's stressing the objective aspect of our salvation. He's telling us about the subjective aspect, too, so we understand it, but his whole emphasis here is on the objective, outside of us. Verses 17 and 18, he comes back to this, and he says, and then he adds, again referring to that prophecy of Jeremiah, and he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. This is the primary thing, the external, the objective reality of our justification through Christ's finished work. God has worked that work completely outside of us, completely apart from our working, and we need to keep looking outside of ourselves to that work that was done by Christ and that we receive as a gracious gift. It has nothing to do at all with what we've done. It has nothing to do with what we will do. It has nothing to do with Um, what we are now as we're being changed and uh, being made more like Christ. No, that's an ongoing work of the Spirit as well. But this is just that objective, perfected reality, that finished work of the Savior. That's what we rely upon. That's what gives us the forgiveness of all our sins. And it's all because of Jesus, all because of what He has done for us. And this is where our comfort is to be found. This is where all our peace is is found. It's in the objective, not in the subjective. Yes, you can, you can take some comfort and you can take some um, joy from knowing the Spirit's presence within you, knowing that He's doing that work within your life. He's so wonderful. We're so blessed to have the Spirit of God doing this, making God's presence a reality in our lives. But again, His work is always going to be imperfect in this life, and that's not where our assurance comes from. The reality is we are still wretched sinners. And we will be as long as we're alive in this life. We're going to be so far from perfection when we look inwardly at ourselves and how we're doing and how far we've come. There's no comfort. So we need to keep looking outwardly, especially whenever we sin. God wants us to look outwardly, outside of ourselves, again, to his son, to Jesus Christ, and his definitive act, his perfect, perfect, completed work that he's done to bring about the forgiveness of all our sins, to bring about 
our perfect justification before God. He alone is the reason God forgives our sins. Not because of anything we're doing. Not because of anything we are. All because of Jesus and what he did for us. He is perfect, and we are hidden in him now by faith. Again, hear that wonderful good news that the writer says here. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Keep your eyes on that single offer. And verse 18 concludes our passage. Where sins have been forgiven, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no longer any atoning work to be done, and therefore there's no longer any threat of condemnation for you, but for the one who looks to Jesus Christ in faith. Jesus is resting now in his enthronement. He has no more atoning work to do, no more offering to be given. He is rested from that work, and we rest in him by faith. So do that, believer. Rest in him always. Rely on him and him alone. I pray that you'll grow to love him more and more because of this great gift that you've been given. Love him with all your heart and mind and strength and more and more every day as you continue to rely upon him and his perfection that he's provided for you. He is such a wonderful savior, so perfect. Keep your eyes fixed outwardly on him and not inwardly on yourself and your own performance. He is your law keeper before the father, your perfect law keeper. He is your atoning sacrifice for all your sins. He's your great high priest and your advocate now before the Father, your prayer warrior before the Father in heaven, pleading for you. He's the only one who accomplished everything that was needed for you and I to be saved. Everything. He did. He is our everything. So follow the direction of God's word and his spirit as they continually point us to Christ. Keep your eyes of faith and keep the affection of your heart fixed on him, this wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the finished work of your Son. We need him so much. What a great Savior we have in Jesus, our Lord, and what a glorious gift. And what wonderful news we have in the gospel, that we can have all our sins washed away by his perfect blood, his perfect finished work of atonement. We thank you, Lord, also for the Spirit, your wonderful Spirit who dwells in us now and is is continuing your good work within us. We praise you for his internal working in each of us. And we thank you, Lord, not just for his making us holy uh, gradually and progressively in this life, but above all, Lord, we thank you for his shedding your love abroad in our hearts, making us to know your love for us that is secured to us by the Lord Jesus and his perfect work. Without the Spirit, we could have no faith in Christ. We could have no grasp of your great love your amazing, steadfast love for us in the Savior. We pray that you'd bless your Spirit's ministry in all our lives, and by your Spirit, we pray that you would call effectually those who don't know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.